Hello and welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics, Ria Cernat. The co-host, Bojan Stanislavski, is going to join us in the second segment of our show where we discuss socialism. Socialism with Romanian characteristics, socialism with Chinese characteristics, socialism um, as an idea and political project. And it is this time around, Pat wanted to ask me about an article I wrote exactly about this, um, socialism with Romanian characteristics. So please, Pat, tell us what, how come you're interested in Romania? Maybe it's a reflex of a self-colonized person that doesn't think that the world is paying attention to Romania, especially if that person comes from Great Britain, right? But uh, tell me, why are you interested and um, why? Are, what are your ideas about Romania and uh, the, the socialism uh, that we had? And why did you want to have a conversation with me, a dialogue with me about uh, socialism with Romanian characteristics? Well, uh, I, well first of all, I, I, um, I'm based in, in Brazil. And uh, just to introduce myself, um, uh, you know, yes, I, I forgot to tell our audience. Sorry, sorry, I forgot to tell no our worries. audience. I am so, so you, so used to you coming to our show. Pat is a friend of our show, and uh, uh, he is a staunch leftist and a longtime labor activist. And uh, he is uh, writing a book about China and why he thinks China will rule the world, isn't it? This is the idea of the book. So the, sorry for forgetting about this. I was so, you know, getting into the dialogue and I forgot to, to tell the viewers about you. Well, uh, just to, on that, it's not that I think China will rule the world, but that China will be, play a leading role in the world and become the the, 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 the most advanced economy, um, which is an important distinction because a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of the left have this, uh, and people generally have this idea that um, we're, we're currently in an e a battle between two empires, you know, a declining mm -hmm. empire being replaced by a rising empire in terms of a declining empire being America and the rising empire being China. Um, but I would argue that uh, this is a different situation to that. And China is not trying to become the uh, dominant force in the world, but wants to actually have a totally different model for international relations. But that's another subject. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm I'm based in, in, in Brazil. I was um, born and brought up in UK. So that's why I have a British accent. But all my family are from Ireland, which is, has a, had a big influence on my political upbringing and, and thinking. Um, now, I came across an article that, that Maria wrote, an excellent article about um, developments in um, Romania. And, uh, and I thought I, it, it rang a bell with me. Um, first and foremost, of course, the fact that they, <clears throat> the, the Socialist Party in Romania had come out with this program for uh, socialism with Romanian characteristics, which they had obviously lifted from China. Um, and also, when they outlined some of the aspects of the policy, I thought <clears throat> you could react to it in different ways. And, and I, I was very interested in how in what Maria reported on that. And I wanted to give the experience of China uh, and so, see how that could actually 
how, how such a program could work in Romania, how it could it be introduced, uh, etc. So um, I wrote this article because I was invited by uh, famous in leftist circles activist Georgita Zbagan. Uh, he is the oldest leftist that we have in Romania, an elderly person, a very wise person. He speaks Chinese, he speaks Russian, and he has a lot of contacts with the leftist parties in Russia, Kazakhstan, China, all over the place, Cuba. And... Um, he invited me and a couple of friends to join this political event where the Romanian Socialist Party, where he is a member and a founding member of, and the party of workers in Georgia. Now, this is made optimistic, but once I arrived there, I saw that, uh, unfortunately, these are very, very tiny political parties. And despite the fact that Romania needs, like, it's vital to have socialist political parties in Romania with a leftist agenda. Despite all that, uh, we have a lot of mainstream right-wing parties that are fighting for the same electorate. And in the general elections, somewhere around 30% of the population attend these elections and actually vote. And I would say that the other ones feel that they are not represented at all. And despite the fact that there is such a need and such a potential for these ideas, these people are somewhere in the on the fringes of the political life. And uh, what is even more troubling is that the youngest, younger generation of leftists in Romania despise them and consider them old people who are not progressive enough in cultural terms, in terms of the LGBTQ um, rights and feminism and all the rest. And it's very interesting, a very, very interesting political party because I think these people, and especially Georgitas Baganu, who is, by the way, a mathematics professor and taught at the university uh, in Romania, and he's currently a member of the Romanian Academy and the Institute of Mathematics. So I think he is one of the most well-read and educated people in terms of reading Marx, Lenin, uh, Rosa Luxemburg, all the classic leftist literature. And he had the mm. chance to read a lot of these books in original because, as I told you, he knows a lot of foreign languages and he's fluent in them. So he is very uh, well politically educated in these aspects. But something happened in Romania. You know, Romania... Uh, we even had political education in universities, in schools, and it was not um, something exceptional to meet people like this that, that, that were very well versed in, in Marx or Lenin. But in terms of keeping in touch with the progressive movements in the West, something broke there. There is a, a huge gap between this generation of socialists, elderly socialists in Romania and the younger generation. And unfortunately, the younger generation for the youngest gener for the younger generation, 
Oh, socialism means the Jacobins, socialism means the cool, you know, activist movements in the West and the feminism and all this activism around uh, people of color for fights for civil liberties. And uh, I say this is a form of um, socialism coming from the West and it was developed in the past decades, and not from the socialist tradition of the ex-Soviet Union countries. And um, I think it was bound to be a clash. And part of the reason why these ideas that the Romanian Socialist Party is putting forward are not getting traction is also because even in the little bubble of leftists that we have in Romania, they are considered old school, they are considered even conservatives, they are considered even reactionaries. And to tell you the truth, some of them are in the sense that I would not consider them reactionary, but naive in the sense that they could ask you questions. Oh, is this person talking of sex? Or do you think they are referring to prostitution? I mean, they are completely separated from all the cultural wars, all the, you know, debates that are now trending, you know, on all social media channels. And this makes them a little, you know, out of place. But I would say what they are suggesting and their ideas, and especially this idea of having socialist market economy um, might gain traction, and especially not with the young uh, socialists in Romania, but maybe with the general population that is enduring hardships, economic hardships due to a very, very savage capitalist system that we have had for the past three decades. And uh, the last thing that I would say, and then I will um, discuss, is this this idea of um, socialist market economy. Maybe they have thought it through, but my interpretation was that it was kind of an opportunistic idea that they put forward uh, because they wanted to somehow... um, to balance between the interests of those who have, and there are owners of uh, businesses like the head of the party, and the ones that would like um, uh, important businesses to be guided and to be in the hands of the state. Uh, And this is also very interestingly an idea that Albena Azmanova um, a person that wrote a, a book and uh, we translated this book at the barricade, Capitalism on Edge, put forward this idea of having private enterprise, but then having the state, you know, coordinating the whole economic uh, activity. Now, this much about what I had to say about this party, the state of socialism and the socialist Romanian party in uh, Romania. Uh, I want to learn more about this idea that they put forward, but unfortunately they just expressed it and they haven't um, laid out what it actually means to have a socialist market economy. And I know that you are passionate about the economy 
in China and how it works. Mm -hmm. And probably it has some connections to what is happening there. So if you could elaborate on this and explain whether this is the case or not, whether these are two completely separate ideas, what do you think? Well, I, I <clears throat> the, the, um, the problem we start with is that uh, when we look at uh, the comparison with China, is that uh, many of the left, particularly in the West, um, are so surrounded by hostile propaganda about China that they don't really, um, uh, they haven't had the chance to, to investigate what's happening in China properly and to understand the the prime uh, movers in the in the Chinese system. So, so a lot of the left in the West uh, goes along with this idea that China is capitalist. Now, for the for the for the for the media, the mainstream media in the West, of course, they like to say that because uh, then they can take credit for the fantastic um, economic success of China since uh, you know since the death of Mao. Um, and they can say, well, it's because capitalism was introduced in China, and as a result, uh, they've had this fantastic success. Um, but of course, they then say, but it's a version of capitalism that's kind of authoritarian capitalism or state capitalism. They throw around these phrases. <clears throat> now, you can understand that they would try to do that, um, but for the left to go along with that is, without investigating further, I think is daft. Um, <clears throat> the reality was that after after Mao died. The Chinese, uh, you know, Mao, Mao's leadership of China um, and the period before he, he, he did various uh, measures such as the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. But even earlier than that, um, in, the, in the immediate post-revolution post um, period in the 1950s, um, China followed, first of all, they followed the Soviet model um, of, uh, you know, the, the, the Soviet Union at that time, the 1950s. 50s. Um, then, then Mao launched the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, which effectively abandoned planning and uh, uh, followed uh, Stalin's model of the late 1920s, the what we call often call war communism, where basically you nationalize everything, you collectivize all the agriculture, um, and you abandon planning, and you you try through superhuman efforts to overcome the contradictions of the economy. <clears throat> um, and that resulted in a lot of problems, a uh, huge famine. And it, 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 did, uh, it did cause a lot of problems in terms of the growth of, uh, the, growth of the economy slowed down. Um, while there were some big improvements in China during that period in terms of health education and so on in the village level, um, it, 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 there was still, when, when Mao died, there was still a lot of poverty in China. And so um, the reaction of, of the of the of the leadership was to breathe a sigh of relief because they felt that they under Mao they felt they were you know there was a lot of repression um, millions of, of Communist Party members were were stripped of their positions sent into the countryside and so on and there was a lot of persecution so there was a great sense of relief um, after Mao died and there was an attitude among the communists that. Um, uh, let's learn from this experience and not make those mistakes again. So what then China did was they launched a huge, under Deng Xiaoping, and, uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's the figurehead figure. I mean, he actually he was pretty old by that stage. Um, but the group around him, uh, it was a large group of um, reformers, um, 
they came to the they came to the idea that they didn't want to abandon socialism but they wanted to make it work much more effectively in a country like china which was overwhelmingly agricultural and so um uh, that's why they turned to lenin's ideas on the new economic policy which he had introduced in the 1920s and they decided that they were going to try try to implement those ideas and take them through to their logical conclusion and uh, that that meant that they would um uh, not pretend that somehow they could leap to so advanced socialism overnight i mean you remember one of the one of the strange contradictions of of the revolutions that took place first of all in the soviet union and then in china was that <clears throat> this was con totally contrary to what marx had been expecting in you know and, and these were all marxist uh, followers of marx marx had uh, his idea had been that there would be you know the, the 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 socialism would come in those countries that were most advanced in terms of capitalism you know where the working class had become the majority of the population and that the that the companies small companies had become big companies and therefore it was very logical to take the next step that these big companies would become taken over by the state and that the working class would be the majority of society and that that would be the basis for the development of an advanced industrialized modern society um run in the socialist manner so that was their original idea everybody knows that but it didn't work out like that the, the revolutions that happened were in the, the some of the most backward areas of the world so you know russia was one of the poorest semi-feudal countries and china even more so i mean the working class in china hardly existed until the first world war you know um uh, so so it was a it was a um, a, a complete contradiction and the problem you had then was <clears throat> how do you go from a backward semi-feudal country to a modern industrialized socialist society how can you do that a very very difficult situation to, to achieve and <clears throat> what lenin came to the conclusion was that with the new economic policy was that you had to um <clears throat> you had to um, kind of make a a, a compromise um, you had to utilize the the early forces of capitalism. So what had happened in the capitalist countries was small farms and small businesses had become bigger over a period of time. And uh, that had tapped into the, the market forces. <clears throat> Unlike feudalism, where everything had been controlled from the state um, by the king and the monarchy and the aristocracy, they allowed people to have their um, initiative and um, to pursue economic things that they thought would be wor worthwhile. And they realized that these kind of forces, the market, um, uh, you know, small business uh, initiative and so on, were necessary in, um, in China. And uh, so that's what they, they did. So they, <clears throat> instead of trying to have everything owned by the state and everything planned by the state, you know, in, in the Soviet model where all, all the main prices were set centrally and everything, they thought, let's bit by bit allow the market to, to play a role here. And we'll 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 keep the the core of of uh, state control, but we'll allow um, cap capitalist uh, methods and capitalist things uh, to develop, and we'll we'll see we'll try to direct that. So that was the history of China, and we now come through to the the present day, <clears throat> where I mean I'm obviously truncating it all, but we're now through to the present day where, although the the capitalist the big there's a large private sector uh, of the economy capitalist sector of the economy, still um, Chinese society and the Chinese economy is dominated and, and directed by the state in a socialistic manner. 
And so therefore, you have planning, you have uh, finances controlled by the state because all the, the banks are, are, are state-owned. The land is owned by the state, so it's, it's rented out and leased out to um, companies and individuals, but it's still owned by the state, um, which is a very important um, element of control and ownership. Then you have the state-owned enterprises. And so China has, in every major sector, has uh, uh, the leading company of that sector, uh, with the exception perhaps of the latest sectors like um, uh, technology. But uh, all the main sectors are led by uh, state-owned enterprises. And one of the very interesting things is they've allowed those state-owned enterprises to uh, operate freely so that they're able to mm -hmm. go into other mm -hmm. sectors that they want to. And so you, you also have, you have all the, the public investment, you have publicly funded innovation, you have all the central and local government services. Um, so actually, if you, if you do a calculation, it's about 75% of the Chinese economy is actually still state-owned or state-controlled. And over the top of all that, you have the Chinese Communist Party, um, which is giving direction to the economy and responding to things. And we're seeing the latest developments is that the, 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 the Chinese economy and the Chinese society is moving to the left. If you look at the crackdowns has been on... Yes, I, I, I wanted to ask about that because you know what my fear is that we saw that happening also in America gradually where a couple of years ago they removed the cap that was placed on the amount of money that you could invest in an electoral race and to support your favorite candidate. And now anybody can just throw as much money as they want electoral mm. campaign and that this is a source of corruption because it's not one person one vote but one dollar one vote and who gets the most dollars gets the most of the votes yeah. it's logical and my fear was that if china is not careful enough and the communist socialist uh, communist party in china is not careful enough then you will have people with a lot of money and a lot of power to influence the political system and to mm. transform it and to make it work uh, in their own interests. So I wanted to, to probably explain whether this is the case or not. Well, I think you're right that, you know, China now, let's bear in mind that China now has the is the country with the most billionaires in the world, more than America, considerably more than America. Exactly. And, and, uh, I, I would argue that this is a, this is a constant danger for China, for Chinese socialism, because wealth gives power. We know that. Um, now, at the moment, um, that's not the case because the the Communist Party controls society um, and uh, not the billionaires. That's completely the opposite situation to the West. In the in the West, the billionaires. <coughs> are able to control society because um, they fund the politicians, the political parties, the, um, the election campaigns. Uh, and once those politicians are in power, they, they fund, their, they fund their, um, them in all sorts of different ways in the Congress. So as a result, um, you know, they've got these lobbyists. I think it's something like three or four lobbyists for every member of Congress and things like that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so you've got a swarm of these uh, representatives of the of the billionaires are, are running around the uh, the politicians and pressurizing them and 
encouraging them to do whatever. So as a result, um, and, and on an individual basis, if a billionaire wants to call the president of the United States, generally speaking, they can just call the White House and they'll be put through. Um, now, that's completely different to China. Um, if the, the, as we've seen from a whole number of, of high-profile examples, the billionaires, um, if they try to comment on Chinese politics, I mean, I'm sure that privately they probably try to, you know, have a word in this politician's ear, you know, party official's ear. But they can't openly come out and campaign against the government's policies. And if they do, then they risk being uh, disappearing, ending up in prison, losing all their wealth. Uh, and we've seen, uh, you know, uh, some of the richest people in China, um, like Jack Ma and, and other people, this happened to. So, and there's always, you know, there's always skeletons in the closets of all of these rich people uh, in terms of corruption. So they can easily fall foul of the ongoing anti-corruption drive of the party. So they, they have to keep in line. So they don't have political control. And, and there are surveys that have been done of the rich in China who, who expressed a great discontent with this. <laughs> no, but but um, but and and then one of the interesting things, yeah, one of the interesting things was that uh, there was a banker uh, recently, a couple of bankers who were arrested, and the, the Western press were were making a big thing about how this was an example of authoritarianism and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but there were a lot of people um, in, in America writing on emails and social media saying. Wow, that's great! Why can't they? Why did they not arrest any of the bankers in America? You know, in the banking crisis, this is what we what we need. So, um, you know that. So that's a very important aspect at the moment that the that the the billionaires they make their money, but they can't actually um, uh, control the system. Not only that, also they're, they're limited in how they can. There's a lot of controls over whether they can take their money out of the country. So that's another uh, aspect. Having said that, I do think in the long run that the, the <clears throat> that there needs to be a big campaign in China against inequality. Now they have they have launched this campaign called Common Prosperity. You know where mm -hmm. the idea mm -hmm. is that you you spe you share out the prosperity much more equally to the population, and and actually that is that would be to the benefit of the Chinese economy because what tends to happen is that the billionaires don't spend. To anything like the degree of ordinary people do, and this would actually be a boost to the um, the spending power and the consumption of the Chinese economy if they were to do this. And and my my view is that I don't know if you're familiar with this 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 amazing program that the Chinese um, government uh, launched for over eight years and finished two years ago, which was about um, getting rid of extreme poverty, and they lifted. Uh, and they lifted 100 million people out of extreme poverty and ended extreme poverty in China. Well, that um, I, I believe that we should <clears throat> um, have the same kind of campaign, not against extreme poverty, but against extreme wealth. And we need to have to, that needs to be launched. That should be launched in China. Um, and, and I know that would be incredibly popular among the rest of the population because the people in China actually have a different attitude towards the billionaires than they do in in America, say, um, in America, billionaires are celebrated, and you have all these programs about what their houses look like, and and every word they say is, is publicized and so on. Whereas in China, most people understand quite correctly that to become a billionaire means that you've cheated the system somehow or exactly. other. You you've overcharged for your services. 
you've overexploited your workers, uh, you perhaps you've got some corrupt decisions made, public decisions made in your favor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because nobody nobody can become a billionaire by their own personal efforts. It's not possible. You know, you'd you'd have to work for a thousand years to get a, a billion dollars in a normal situation. You know. So it's a bit of a, so China, the situation is pretty different. Um, but you're correct that, that obviously in the long run, um, we you know, China has to um, find a way to tackling this question of, of billionaires. Now, what they've done, one of the biggest problems of billionaires is in the, in the tech sector, right? And um, <clears throat> we saw, for example, in the education te technology sector in China, um, they, they wiped out a lot of billionaires who were who the, the effect of what they were doing with this private online education was they were exploiting the, the the parents of the children and exploiting the children too and making them overwork and and so on it's becoming the pressure is becoming too great and so um the um the what the chinese communist party um i think one of the ministers in education described it as education being hijacked by capitalism and so they took measures to dramatically cut back the um, these uh, these um, online education programs, cut back the amount of time that, that children were being asked to to work on them till eleven o'clock at night and all this nonsense. So they've they've cut back these hours and they've cut back the costs and uh, and as a result, uh, the, the the leading billionaires in that sector were reduced to millionaires overnight, which is a good thing, you know. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Thank you so much for this uh, discussion. In the second segment, we will discuss more um, about mm -hmm. these three so-called mountains that President Xi Jinping announced at some point that China has to overcome the mountain of education inequality, and I think it was housing, if I'm not mistaken, but they have this metaphorical way of putting it but it was especially about inequality and how they want to tackle the, the issue. Uh, because I think it's fascinating to learn more about China. I would only say that it's very convenient for the left to portray China as capitalist because if they do so, the leftist circles all around the world Romania, but, oh, we shouldn't look for inspiration in China because it's authoritarian and capitalist. We should look for inspiration mm -hmm. in the culture wars in the West. This is where the um, ideas should come from. The light should come from the West mm -hmm. <laughs> this time around. And I think that's very convenient also from a number of reasons, this one being just one of those reasons. So thank you so much for being here with us in the next segment. We will be joined by the co-host, uh, Boyan Stanislavski. To the viewers, if you like what you saw, please subscribe, please share our content. And to the extent you feel you can afford it, we have a Patreon account, patreon.com slash the barricade. This is where you can find it. We have a small community of donors. Thank you very much for your support this is it we'll see you all in the next segment of our show